0: Hello, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. On the show today, part two of my interview with Ellen Hart, a 32-time age group winner and multiple world champion in different distances and events on the triathlon scene over the years. The triathlete, Rutal, goes off the beaten path and off the triathlon path altogether with a special episode dedicated to traveling to see the spring cycling classics in Europe. It's true, there's no swimming or running involved, but there are Belgian frits and beer to be consumed, so for me anyways, this is well worth discussing. But first, I have the second part of last episode's listener question to answer. As you'll recall, on the past episode, I talked about the science behind creatine supplementation. On this episode, I'm going to look at beta alanine supplementation, what it is, how it's proposed to work, and the evidence that supports or refutes the claims of its manufacturers. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, I hope that you'll take a moment to leave me a rating and a review wherever you download this. Those really, really do help. Don't forget to also check out my website for our coaching, www.try.coaching.com. If you're looking to take your training and racing to the next level, maybe we can work together to get you On the last episode of the Tri-Doc Podcast, I answered the first part of a listener question related to a specific type of supplement and its potential effects on performance. On this episode, I'm going to answer the second part of that question. The listener, Michael, had asked specifically about two of the most commonly used supplements by athletes in many sports, creatine and beta-alanine. Last time, I reviewed the evidence on creatine. Today, I'm going to discuss beta-alanine. What is it? How is it proposed to work to benefit athletes, and what is the evidence supporting its use? Like creatine, beta-alanine is a naturally occurring compound that is formed from amino acids and is synthesized normally in our livers. It's a precursor to the formation of an intracellular compound called carnosine that is found principally inside muscle cells. Carnosine has an important role in muscle cells as a buffer. That is to say, it works to neutralize any sudden increases in acid concentrations and keeps the muscle cell at a normal operating pH. Now let's take a moment to consider why this is important, and when the environment of the muscle cell may become increasingly acidic, and what exactly that can result in. Under normal efforts of exertion, muscles contract in order to perform the work needed for whatever activity it is that's being performed. The two principal requirements for that work to be done are a source of energy and oxygen. Energy is provided by the fuels that we eat and, to some degree, the fuel or the fuel that we keep stored in the form of, say, glycogen, while oxygen is provided by the cardiopulmonary system and delivered to the muscle cells in the blood. If levels of exertion increase beyond the capacity for oxygen to be delivered, then cells will switch to a different means of metabolism that is independent of oxygen. A byproduct of this kind of metabolism is lactic acid, and with increasing concentrations of lactic acid, or lactate, the pH, or level of acidity in the cell, will become progressively lower – in other words, more acidic – unless, that is, there are buffers to neutralize those acids. The effect of an increasingly acidic environment is a breakdown in the cellular processes that the muscle cell is supposed to perform. Indeed, it is well known that as acidity increases, muscle cells become less able to perform their functions and this manifests as fatigue. So acidity is essentially a major cause of muscle fatigue and failure. Carnosine, that molecule that beta-alanine is a precursor of, acts as a kind of acid sponge within the muscle cells, soaking up acid and allowing the muscle cell to continue to function normally despite increasing production of lactate. The theory behind beta-alanine supplementation, then, is that by loading up on this precursor, you can force the body to use it to build more carnosine in the cells and have a higher concentration of buffer, allowing for a higher tolerance of lactic acid. Or at least that's the theory. Before parsing the evidence that tests the different elements of that theory, a brief word about why it is that you can't simply supplement with carnosine itself. It turns out that our blood contains an enzyme that destroys carnosine on contact but that this enzyme does not live within our muscle cells. So if we took carnosine supplements, none of it would actually make it to our cells, as it would simply be degraded as soon as it was absorbed into the blood from our guts and be excreted in the urine. Beta-alanine, on the other hand, faces no such similar fate, and instead is taken up by the cells and converted to carnosine. So let's take a look at the evidence. First and foremost, there's no question that supplementing with beta-alanine increases cellular carnosine. This has been shown consistently, although the relative amount of the increase, the time that it takes to reach its peak, and the amount of beta-alanine required to accomplish this does vary from study to study. Still, it's very clear that supplementation with beta-alanine does accomplish the goal of increasing muscle cell concentrations of carnosine. Second, this increase in carnosine has been shown to have an impact on mitigating acidity in the cell under certain conditions. Specifically, those conditions are high-intensity exercise over a pretty defined time interval, and I'll have more to say on this in a few moments. Third, and lastly, beta-alanine definitely improves exercise performance, but we're going to need to consider a healthy side dish of caveats to go with that. Now, studies on exercise performance and beta-alanine supplementation have, for the most part, been pretty consistent. Supplementation does work, but only for specific types of exercise and only for specific time durations. On top of that, it appears that certain types of study subjects benefit more than others. So let's tease all of that out to make it a little bit more understandable. First off, let's consider the types of exercise that beta alanine has been shown to improve performance in. Across the board, be it in swimming, cycling, running, resistance training, or anything else that's been studied, Beta-alanine supplementation only helps for the high-intensity efforts that result in the production of lactate. Think 100 or 200-meter swim sprints or track cycling. Second, let's consider the time duration of activity that beta-alanine has been shown to be helpful for. In very short-duration activities, those lasting less than a minute, beta-alanine has not been shown to be beneficial. Think, for example, things like powerlifting, where the exercise is very brief but very intense. Now, this makes sense because it takes more than a minute for lactate production to begin and to reach a point where cellular function is impacted. In short-duration activities, even in those that are high-intensity and potentially even anaerobic, they're simply too brief to get the cells very acidic where high levels of carnosine would make any difference. For activities of longer than 10 minutes, beta-alanine has not been shown to be helpful either. In addition, activities that are done aerobically, that is to say at moderate intensities, also have not been shown to be benefited by beta-alanine supplementation. Lastly, in a wide variety of studies on different types of activities when beta-alanine has been shown to confer a benefit, it does so to a larger degree in non-athletes than in athletes. That is to say, studies that have used untrained individuals have shown larger benefits of beta-alanine supplementation than have those that used well-trained athletes. So basically, beta-alanine is great if you're doing activities that are between 1 and 10 minutes long, and especially if you're using people that are not particularly well-trained as athletes. Now, on the plus side, beta-alanine is safe, and the effects of supplementation are fairly long-lasting. The only known side effect is tingling or paresthesias, principally in the face and neck, related to the release of neurotransmitters that occurs when beta-alanine is ingested. This effect can be mitigated by taking lower doses, but the supplementation protocols do call for pretty high doses that pretty reliably cause this side effect. All in all, beta-alanine supplementation can be of benefit to athletes in specific sports not called triathlon, distance running, or cycling. While in no way harmful, beta-alanine simply confers no benefits to athletes participating in sports that require aerobic efforts over prolonged periods of time. Now there's been some theorizing that using beta alanine can allow for improved training at anaerobic or super-threshold intervals, and that could then potentially result in improved overall aerobic benefits in the long term, but this has not been shown in any studies to date. Now if you decide you want to try beta alanine, the protocol is as follows. You need to take 6 grams daily, divided into 4 doses for 4 weeks, and you follow that by taking 4 grams daily, divided again in 4 doses. You can expect to have paresthesias, especially at the high dose for the first four weeks, but often those paresthesias will continue even in the four four grams per day. And the effects of beta alanine supplementation are generally seen after the initial four-week loading protocol. As always, I'll include all of the references to all of the literature that I used in developing this segment in the show notes on the website for the podcast, www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Com. Do you have a question for me to consider for answering on the show? Well please send it to me at Tri D O C at iCloud.com. When I sat down to interview my guest for this episode, I had no idea how far reaching our discussion would be, nor how long we would talk for. Rather than edit our conversation for length, I decided to break the interview into two parts. Part one was in the last episode of the podcast. Here, then, is the conclusion of my conversation with Ellen Hart. I want to talk a little bit about your career and a, a little bit about your advice for others. So um, what, if you could list, like, three highlights. I mean, your career is just amazing. But can you think of three things that really stand out for you, three of the of your wins or three of your races that really stand out as highlights?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, and they're... Not so much, they're, they're not even all wins. Um, but it's sharing an experience and sharing an effort and sharing a goal and sharing a striving for that goal and involving people that you love in that effort and then having them share it with you at the end. Um, I would say two of them involve my son. He and my boyfriend at the time, husband now, came to watch me at Kona in 2010. And they were out there at every single place you can be to see your, you know, your athlete. And they had all kinds of fun together during the day. I mean, they had to, you know, seek refuge at Kentucky Fried Chicken because they had really good air conditioning there. But then they were back out there waiting for me, and that was the first time that I won at Kona. And I saw them as I'm coming down to E Drive, and I saw them, and I got a high five from both of them. And it was just... Um, you know, a really special, exhilaratingly fun um, experience. And it would have been fun anyway, but to get to share it with them. And, you know, and when I thank my children, um, especially when my son was little, he would say, Mom, I don't help you. And I say, "Mm, yeah, you do. Every time I go out for a workout, when you say, have a good ride, Mom, or have a good run, Mom, or see you later, Mom, with a smile on your face, instead of you know giving me attitude like why aren't i you know doing something with him or why aren't i cooking like a really nice dinner for him or why aren't i you know just even around more that's part of it that's helping me that's being part of the team and um the second one was or a- another one was um this past year at Kona when i knew it was going to be my last full ironman And I had been injured. I hadn't been able to run since March. And I did everything that I could to get my foot healed, and it just wouldn't heal. And so I had the spot, and I wanted to finish what I had started, and I wanted that chapter to be over. Um, And so I said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with my team. It was Team Timex last year, and a lot of really good friends on that team. It was the 40th. Year of the Ironman, and one of my teammates was one of the original participants. Um, there were all kinds of reasons to want to go, and my daughter and her partner had been with me the year before. And I asked them and my husband if they would be part. I said, "You don't have to because it's not going to be a it's not going to be a, a glory day. It's really not." Um, and um, but you're the people that I would like to finish this up with, and. Um, they were there, <laughs> boy were they there, and it really didn't go all, the, 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 uh, I, what I wanted to do was to enjoy the bike and the run, and then I thought I probably wouldn't be able to do the, the uh, enjoy the, the swim and the bike, and I probably wouldn't be able to do the run, and, and so there were a couple of different plans, and I said I might start out, I might just shuffle along down a lead drive and then finish up and we can watch the end together, or you know there are various possible outcomes. Um, none of which was going to be a podium finish or you know Ellen bathed in glory at the end of the race and they were okay with that and so in t2 I put on my shoes took some ibuprofen I know doc that's probably not a great idea but I shuffled along and then I got that loop on elite drive done and then I just said I want to keep going I just want to see what happens knowing that Probably nothing good was going to happen, but <laughs> thinking, well, why not and I got to about sixteen miles and then I just like i just couldn 't run anymore i hadn 't prepared for it as a sixty year old I mean maybe as a thirty year old you can just step out there and run a marathon, but i couldn 't, and so literally, I had to walk the last ten miles. And as it turns out, that takes a really, really long time. Like, it takes a whole lot longer than running.
0: There is no shame in that. I know plenty of people who have done that before.
1: But it was just, it was wretched. It was really miserable. And so coming back in, and God knows there are all these people when you're coming back in and you want to at least look like an athlete, but I'm walking. And I see Nell and her fiancé, Danielle, and I said, apparently, they reported this to me later. They said... You asked me, are you going to be there at the end? And we said, yeah, of course. And then I said, I don't know if I can make it. And as you know, it's only just that last loop on Ali'i Drive, but they said I was kind of weaving and I wasn't really you know, lucid. And so I come around the bend, and there's Ali'i Drive, and I start thinking about this song. It just came into my head, but it's that... Florence and the Machine song about run fast for your mother, run fast for your father, your your sisters and brothers, your children. And I just thought about all these... Like amazing places that my running had taken me, and I just burst out crying. I mean, I just burst out crying. Then that's not really what you want to do when there are like thirty photographers in that last stretch, and I'm just sobbing, you know, kind of like dragging myself down the street. And then I know that Nell and Danielle and Rob are going to be someplace, and so and all this is documented on 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 photographs. And I'm looking and I'm looking, and then I see them, and I go over there, and still the tears are coming down. And there's a picture of me giving my daughter a hug. And it's like that was worth more to me than the top step of a podium. I mean, that she was there and I got to see her and she got to be part of that. And then I, you know, shuffled the rest of the way to the finish line. And then it was over. Yeah. Um, But And I know that was a lot of details. You can cut all that out.
0: (laughs) I don't Um, think I will. That was great.
1: but, But it was just a different kind of thing because... I I'm used to winning. I like winning. Um, you know, a lot of my identity is probably for good or for bad in being successful and that was, you know, kind of abject misery and failure and crying. I mean, a 60-year-old like crying. And 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 but it was also really beautiful and full of love and I wouldn't have traded it for the world.
0: I want to finish with um any advice you might have for women, for people as they get older, as you've continued to have just tremendous success, what advice do you have for people to stay in the sport and to, you know, to continue to do well?
1: Well, I haven't had much success in that kind of you know, traditionally defined way in the last couple of years. But to continue doing what you love to do, I think you have to have a view of the long road, you know, figuratively and literally, that you have a lot of time and you have a lot of, you know, there are a lot of chapters in your life. And, you know, during the time when my kids were little and I didn't have very much help with the kids, I hardly got out to run maybe once a week and I thought I was done. And then there came another period where um, I was just injured a lot and I thought, "I'm, I'm just done. This is too much. And then there was another chapter and you just have to be, alert to the gifts that are, you know, sort of moved in your direction and, and say, yes, yeah, this is a good thing to do. Um, and, and like now, I mean, it just sounds ludicrous, but I'm taking a biathlon because I think that, um, cross country skiing is going to be easier on my foot. And it's also like, I've never, I hadn't until I started training, um, shot a gun in my life, but it's like, to me, it's like a bowling ball and a bowling pin it's like a sport you hit that thing at the end of the 50 yard you know so there are lots of things to do out there and lots of things to try out there and to not get too impatient i mean i used to just want to get back from injury right away and i used to just you know want to jump the gun a little bit but that being a little bit kinder to yourself and being a little bit i don't know more patient with recovery, because that's always—I mean, you know—injuries and aches and pains are always going to be part of the, part of the, um, part of the matrix. And so, to just lighten up a little bit and to look for opportunities where you can still have fun.
0: Ellen Hart is a phenomenally successful triathlete. She's the former first lady of Denver. She is uh, a new biathlete. Uh, She is constantly surprising. She is always smiling, and I am very excited to have had her on the TriDoc podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Ellen. It it has been an an absolute pleasure.
1: Well, it's been an honor for me to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
0: For this episode of the Triathlete du Talk, I'm going to deviate from the usual plan of giving you an audio travel guide of sorts to a popular destination race on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar. Today, I have a special guest and a special topic that will be of interest to anyone who is as much of a fan of professional cycling as I am. When deep in the depths of winter, when the trainer rides become almost intolerable, I am always spurred on by the knowledge that as the days slowly grow longer, the spring classic season gets closer and closer. As much as the summer grand tours get most of the attention from the casual fans of cycling, those in the know understand that the real excitement and drama of roads racing takes place in the spring on the bergs and cobbles of Belgium, Holland, and France. My guest today is one of those diehard fans of the one-day races. Justin Lark is an emergency department nurse and an avid cyclist. In 2018, he flew to France to chase the Paris-Roubaix race across northern France, seeing several sectors of Pave before making it in time to catch the finish in the famed velodrome. This year, he went to Belgium to watch the Ronde van Vlaanderen, aka the Tour of Flanders, where he set up shop along the famed cobbles of the feared climb of the Quarimont. On this occasion, he got to ride the Open Sportif of the circuit on the day before the race, and on both trips, drank plenty of great Belgian beers and ate lots of frit alongside the course. But now he joins me to share his tips for anyone else who would be interested in duplicating this fantastic spring cycling experience. Welcome to the TriDoc podcast, Justin. Thanks for having me today. Sorry about the muffled voice. Got a little bit of cold going on here. <laughs> That's all right. I guess that comes with uh, the travel. So what got you interested in doing these
2: trips? Um, well, finally, once I had the financial means, I wanted to get out and finally travel. And these are always kind of the races that kind of came to, a, you know, a love for my heart. It's just, it's the tough man, just Belgium in general, just as very blue collar, good food, good people, good beer, countryside. And growing up in the Midwest, that's kind of the kind of the same kind of roots that I came from. And, you know, like you said, everybody gravitates towards the grand tours, but when you actually really find out what the cycling season's about and what, you know, makes this sport beautiful and interesting, exciting to watch, these definitely these spring classics over the cobbles are definitely those are the ones to see. So that was my hope to finally get out there and see those. So when you first
0: started planning these trips, what kinds of things did you uh, really have to consider uh, in terms of, you know, looking at the course, it seems like you can get to different points on the course, especially in uh, the Paris-Roubaix course. Uh, so so how did you sort of think things through and make your arrangements?
2: So I the first time I kind of winged it because that was the first. And actually, I've been to Paris-Roubaix twice. So I was there in 17 and in 18. Um, but that was the first time I'd ever even left the country. So didn't know the language, didn't understand the train system. Um, I mean, never really flew that much in general anyways. So um, pretty much I would just go to a lot of the British websites because they're very big on doing that because obviously to get to Paris, I think it's like three and a half four hours by their by their train system. Um, but they have a lot of different touring companies and whatnot. so I kind of figured out where I could possibly at Perry roubaix hitch a ride to be able to get to see some of the um, other sectors. Um, but with that, both times I got to see uh, the Arenberg Trench at the for, uh, Forest of Arenberg And then from there, you catch the bus with one of those companies, and they take you back to the velodrome, and you're able to see it at the end there as well. Um, and was, that, was it very costly to do that that way? Um, I think if you did their full setup package, they have like, it's like a 2000 or 3000 euro thing, but I literally just met up with them in Roubaix and I was able to do, uh, 30 euros and I was able to jump on the bus, which I mean, I guess is expensive, but for that experience. And, and for that, you, you got the trench and the velodrome. The trench. And then they took me back to the velodrome and I was actually, I found a Airbnb, um, where I stayed in Roubaix, just outside of Roubaix. It's like a small little municipality of it but it literally was i don't know a less than a mile away from the velodrome and it was with a french couple that actually spoke pretty well pretty good english as well so that was definitely beneficial and it was it was cheap it was probably 65 dollars a night so it was a really nice setup for that race at least and did you do things the same way the second time Yeah, I did the identical thing the second time, and the second time I was able to bring my wife with me, so she was able to finally see Paris and see France, and then that was actually her first bike race she ever saw, so that was definitely interesting. I I, I mean, watching Paris-Roubaix
0: is, I I mean, one of my favorite days of the spring, because it's just such a dramatic race, and I can't even fathom what it must be like to be there. What what is it like? It's...
2: (laughs) It is, I mean, still, I would say that's probably my favorite of the two between that and the Flander, Tour of Flanders. Um, the atmosphere, actually, though, is much better. Even, well, the Forest of Aremberg, the atmosphere is very good. It's, still, it's very raucous. There's tons of people lined up. It's a crazy beer fest. Everybody's just partying. Um, but and do you know they're coming? Or or is it just you, you, you just could hear them? The, you you can see the helicopters over front, okay. and then there's always there's the lead vehicles that are probably I don't know probably with the with the police departments probably like five five to eight minutes before the racers come, so you can you kind of know that it's coming, especially with the helicopter. The but usually they're following the peloton and not the lead group if there's that lead breakaway, so they kind of pop up on you a little bit more unexpected. Um, And that's obviously very exciting. What I noticed is when we get to the velodrome, there's some people that will pack and they'll be hanging out all day for the velodrome. But really, literally, probably 10, 15 minutes before they arrive, people all just start rushing from all angles to kind of fill up the velodrome and fill up the streets. So it doesn't seem like... It's probably just not a very accessible area. I mean, Roubaix, um, as the people that I was staying with, talking to them, it was very well known for textiles back in the day. And it's just a very... Poor, uneducated, yeah. um, northern France, bordering you know Belgium area, where there's just not—it's not a huge population. There's not a huge lot of stuff going on. That's their one tourist day, basically, yeah. of the yeah. year. There's nothing there.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so I would say, but the atmosphere-wise, I mean, it's it's cool, but the the Tour of Flanders is just completely different because all those major climbs are just jam-packed. They've got their VIP settings. They've got. Their beer tent's set up. I mean, it's like the Tour of Flanders compared to Roubaix. Tour of Flanders is like the Super Bowl. That's that's Belgium's Super Bowl, World Series. I mean, what a, yeah. what a FIFA World, whatever you want to yeah. call it, that's their big thing. And yeah. Whether you're a cycling fan or not, I don't know how many cycling fans are even on the course. It's yeah. like Greg Van Avermaet said himself. He's like, yeah, there's probably 10% cycling fans and everybody else is there to party and drink.
0: So before we leave Roubaix, yeah. I just want right. to get a sense of what it's like to see those guys go by in the in the forest of ironborg because it looks like when they play the I mean seeing it at top speed is just insane and then they they slow it down and I mean seeing seeing it in slow motion I, mean, I don't know how these guys do it at that speed.
2: Oh, it's it's intense. I mean, and you can see them leading up. I was probably almost midway through and i believe i got to look back and see how long that is but i think it's, it's a two it's, mile stretch yeah it's it, about two, I it's, think it's about it's, two miles it's
0: yeah i think it's 2300 meters yeah. it's one of the longer stretches yeah. yeah
2: so it's it's super long but i mean those there is like 3 inch gaps in between each ones um front to back side to side i mean if you are not going at a right speed. If you're trying to leisurely just kind of make your way over with those tires, you're going to get your tires stuck in a gap and you're going to go down. Um, And then these guys, they're so jam packed together. I mean, they're blasting, but if they, they're just bouncing off. I mean, you can see them all shouldering off each other and it's not getting space. It's they're literally bouncing back and back and forth and it's, uh-huh. I I will ride it one day, maybe if I can figure out the logistics. But it is it's something else. It's it's crazy, and you can see the tension, and they're not. They don't look like they're enjoying themselves, that's right. for sure. yeah. So uh, back
0: to Flanders then. So you stayed on the Quaremont, You did not go sector to sector Correct. because they rode the Quaremont three times, I believe, Correct. this year. Three
2: times for the men, one time for the women.
0: And you got to see the women as well. I, the women's race looked very exciting, and yeah. uh, it all really came down to the Quaremont. And how high up were you on the Quarimont?
2: So we were just, there's the famous cafe that's on the right that's, Basically, that's not the full finish of it, but they call that basically the peak of the Quermont climb. And I was probably eh, about 150 meters down from that on the same side, so, oh, so you good. could see them coming up for a good 200 meters. Probably would be my guess, and then you could see them go up past there, and it was it was the perfect location.
0: And when you rode this Beltif, does it include the Cuernmont?
2: Yes. So yeah.
0: so could you get a sense of? I mean, a how difficult it was to ride, and then b how much faster they were riding.
2: Oh, oh, they. I mean, they were crushing that. That one. It. It's not the. I mean, if you're more of a powerful kind of guy, it's not a terribly, terribly hard climb. To say it's because I think on average, I think it's maybe four and a half percent uh, gradient is what it is. And then I think it's 2.2 K. So, I mean, it's long, but there's a, it's kind of leads in flat. Then it spikes up steep, then it eases up. But those cobbles are a little bit more brutal. They kind of buckle and bend. So you kind of have to be in the middle. And the biggest problem, I'm sure for them too, because there's so many people in that sport, if there was 16,000 people riding in it. So trying to weave your way through, there's so many people on it. Um, I think what makes that so hard, especially for them, is they ride it three times, but in their race, that's the second final climb, because after that, they have the Paterberg, I right. think, And that was the experience riding that whole sport of, I mean, every time you get up something, I mean, they might be short, it might be, you know, a 500, 700 meter climb, or maybe a little less, And then you go right down, you're like, oh, I'm recovering. But literally a K and a half or 2K later, you're doing the same thing again another one. So it's just up, down, up, down, sawtooth all day. So I think that fatigue over the entire day is what really, really can make that pretty brutal.
0: So back to logistics and just a question, how hard was it to arrange getting a bike?
2: That actually worked out pretty well. Um, I stayed in a small town, uh, Nazareth, which is about... um, I think it was about eight, yeah, about eight miles away from Odenard, where the finish. So is this, is this where you, did you fly into Brussels? So I flew into Paris. If I could in the future, I would try to fly into Brussels. That would probably be easier, because I think to Odenard, which is the main, uh, that's where the finish of the race is, and that's where the uh, Tour of Flanders Museum is as well. So that's like the headquarters that's about an hour and twenty minutes hour by train from Brussels would be okay. that. So that would be easier, but it's generally cheaper to fly into Paris. So
0: you flew to Paris and then you took the train took the to Oudenaarde. Okay, yeah. and how long a train ride was that? And the
2: train, I think, was about three and a half hours with stops. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Okay, you can do the quicker one, which yeah. I think would take you about two hours and fifteen minutes, but it's going to double the cost.
0: And then. And then you stayed in Nazareth, which was outside of Odenau?
2: Correct. It was about eight, mile, eight miles directly north of, of Odenard And
0: to get there, you just took a taxi? You or? could.
2: Well, taxis are hard to find, which I found one of the last days, which was problematic because then I had to walk a little ways <laughs> to get back to my place and then to the train station. But um, where I stayed was about two miles away from the train station. So there's a train station from Odinard to gotcha. Nazareth as well. Um, and then the bike shop. Um, the people that I stayed with, she dropped me off at the bike shop, which was good because that was about four miles away. And was it expensive to rent a bike? No, it was actually, so I rented it for four days, and for four days it was 100 euros, so I think that's about 120 $125 American, so okay. relatively cheap. And that was your means of transportation? Like, and that was everything that I got around, and it was a really nice. It was, uh, I think it was, I'm going to mess it up. It was either the uh, BMC team machine or road machine. I believe it was the road machine.
0: Yeah, the team machine. Or, is oh
2: there, yeah, I, no, no. The time machine is the tri- time the time bike. Yeah. Yeah. So the team machine, I think, is more their climbing one. I think the road machine is more their classics right. one. Um, and it was with disc brakes, which I've never ridden with disc on a on a road bike before. And it was actually not that bad. And uh, and it had the Di2, which I've never had. I'm like, oh, this is. Really, really nice, it's actually. It's pretty sweet, it's right? Pretty, pretty smooth. So <laughs> yeah. that was kind of cool as well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that was probably a $5,000 well, bike. Yeah, that's a know? very high-end bike that yeah. you just got for a nice deal there. So that's great. Yeah, or yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, <coughs> Okay, so uh, you get yourself uh, onto the Quarmont. You're basically there, hanging out, enjoying yourself for the day. Yep. And uh, once they pass by the last time, you just pack it up and head to the nearest pub.
2: Yeah. So there. Yeah. When you're in, so what we did is we took. I actually met. Um, there was another guy staying at the Airbnb. He was from Cyprus, um, and he's this. He's a huge cycling guy too. So he's done that Peru Bay challenge. Now this year he did it for his third time, um, and he's an older guy too. I mean he's 55. Um, and retired, and I'm sure he's got plenty of wealth that he's able to just do what he wants when he wants, which is great. Um, and this was his first time doing Flanders, so we kind of just hooked up, rode together. Um, and what we found is in Odenard, there was a free bus that would take you to either um, the Quermont, the Koppenberg, or the Paterberg. And we decided to just jump on that. We took that bus over to the Quermont because it's like, hey, we get to see the guys three times, get to see the women once. It seems like the easiest thing. Um, so yeah, you watched them fly by you a couple times. And then, uh, if you just go right up where that cafe was at the top of the Querma, they had a big giant screen. So obviously we were ah, able to get okay. up there. We were able to quick get up there. We saw them uh, crest the Paderberg, and then obviously able to watch them into the finish. That's and that great. Was,
0: that was and then cool. I imagine there's lots of vendors. I know the, the French fry tra- uh, trailer's there, uh, yes. and there's vendors selling beers and everything yes. else, I imagine.
2: That's it was pretty cool. much hamburgers, fries, and beers, and then whatever these Belgian Danish things were that were like cheese. Amazing. Some <laughs> amazing cheese thing, I'm sure, that was like 5,000 calories each one, probably.
0: So uh, what did you...
2: <clears throat> What did you learn from the trip? What would you do differently in the future? I would prefer... Um, I liked where I stayed because it was so cheap. I mean, my Airbnb, um, it was like $33 a night. To ha- so, I mean, it was so affordable, and I was there five nights, I believe. So, I mean, that was really nice. Um, it is kind of a pain in the butt because it's two miles to the train station, and, if, and we basically, we didn't take our bikes the day of the race, so we had to walk to the train station take the train station, and then we had to walk back later on. Um, so that was kind of a pain in the butt. It'd be nice to be in Odenard because everything is more... There's more food, obviously, more restaurants, more uh, pubs. Um, stuff is open later. The town I was in is just, like super tiny. So the market, um, the Carrefour market, was closed at 6.30, 7 p.m. every day. Sunday it was closed at 12.30 um, their buses don't run through there as regularly, right. but it was nice and peaceful, and it was fairly close to the bike shop, which was yeah. Advantages. So a trade a trade off:
0: a stay in a small town, less money, but you, you you don't get the the larger town kind of you know exactly. accommodations, and it's yeah.
2: you can't just kind of bounce in and out to the race right. or to the events, and and they had stuff going on all week, all week in Odenard as well, which mm-hmm. would have been cool to be part of.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, And I think you had said you would try to go
0: for longer as well.
2: Yeah. If I could do it again, I would either try to get there maybe a week earlier, because what I did is I had four 12-hour night shifts in a row, got off, flew out Wednesday, and I got off Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. I flew out Wednesday at 3 p.m., first to Iceland, then landed in Paris, got to Paris, then jumped on the train, took the train all the way up there, so... And then I was up for a little bit longer because I had to go and find food. So I would, was probably up for uh, 24, 26 hours straight and then went to bed. Then the next day, had to pick up the bike, went and did a 50-mile ride, which was probably more than I should have. And then the next day is the sportive. And I mean, it's just there's no recovery and your your body's not used to that yet. So that kind of that took its toll. And I actually felt better by Monday, Tuesday.
0: Yeah, when and, it was time to turn around and come home. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um and of the two you you mentioned I think you said Bath roubaix was sort of like the 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 better sort of experience but but or not the experience but the the
2: I think like I think that's race. everybody like for classics people I still think that's everybody's favorite race that's still the better known that's the queen of the classics um the atmosphere though for Flanders is, is, is it, off actually, the charts. it actually actually was yeah. it's way better it's yeah. it's you know I the French like their cycling too, but I don't. Th- it's still I don't think as big, comparable as yeah. the way it is to the Belgians. That's that's their thing, and, right? And they, you know, I mean, you're sitting in the middle of a farm field in the middle of nowhere on some cobbled climb that's been there. I don't for I don't know how many years. You know, a thousand years? I don't know. Yeah. For it's it's just it's something else. How yeah. do you Group that many people together like that and put together a party with a bike race. Yeah. Nothing else like that. And uh, in the sportif, which uh, which hills did you
0: ride, which which are the famous ones? So
2: we did pretty much majority. So I did a little bit shorter course so I didn't get to do the Mur, Um but I did ride that two days later on my own, which was which was cool to go and see and do. Um, but I rode the Paterberg, the Koppenberg, the Quermont, uh the Taenberg. Molenberg, Wolvenberg. I mean there was I did fifteen of those. Um, I'd have to look at the list to remember all of them, but those uh-huh. were the, those are the big, biggest, probably more well known ones. And uh, and then for the flat cobbled sections, because they still have some of them. The two big ones uh, are the Patestrat and the Kirkgate. And those ones are a little bit closer um, to Perry Roubaix style ones, still yeah. not as brutal, but yeah. uh, the Kirkgate was pretty Rattling. I mean, I think that was same thing. I think that was like 2.2 K and it's long and it's rolling. It's not like steep climbs, but I mean, yeah. it's, it's not flat. That's for sure. And you didn't get any flats? No, I got no flats, <laughs> which I was like, I was shocked, but we were riding, um, on mine. It was, uh, uh, Tubular and it was uh, 28, 28 millimeters. So okay. rode it a little bit wrote, longer. And did you ride uh, pretty low pressures? Yeah, I think I don't know what it. I'm guessing it was probably eighty to eighty five psi. Yeah. But they were saying on uh, my back, I think they were saying eight bar and then seven point three bar. And I don't. know Yeah, don't yeah. Know what that's, that about, means. that's about that's about eighty. That is okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. uh, that's uh, fantastic. Um, do you know? Do they do things similar things like this for the other monuments?
2: Um, I think they, I, I have to look, there's, there's at least one of the Ardennes they do. And uh-huh. I'm not sure if it's, I think Flesh, wallon they do. And then I'm not, sh- I think they do have a Liege one as well. Liege, yeah. Best on Liege, I think yeah. they do as well. And that would be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, you know, I like to climb, but I would prefer, you know, like four or five percent yeah yeah just kind of yeah. steady all day long that that choppiness yeah is what makes it so hard and that's why you know i i would do this flanders one again but that was one of the hardest bike things i've ever done it's just there's no recovery time and you yeah i'm not in as good a shape this year if i would have been in the shape that i was the previous two years it might have been a lot better of an experience physically feeling at least because it's it's something else.
0: Yeah. Well, of of all the non-monument races, the two to me that really are just the most amazing finishes are the Strata Bianchi and the Fleche Wallon because they both have those just ridiculous climbs right yes. at the end and uh, invariably they both usually have a breakaway and uh, for some reason the Strata Bianchi breakaway seems to always survive but the breakaway at uh, Flesh always gets caught yeah. on the mirror yeah. they hit the wall and they it's hit that wall and it's, it's over. over yeah every year yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll see if it happens again this year but it seems like uh, that's where Valverde just decides okay I'm, I'm going to take my race now so. yeah.
2: and probably it'll be Alaphilippe now if, if he's if not he's hurt from yeah. that crash yeah so.
0: Well, uh, Justin, thanks so much for being here today and talking about uh, these very exciting one day races. It's a little break from uh, what we usually talk about on the triathlete route, but it's uh, something that uh, I'm very envious of and I uh, hope to be able to do at some point in the future. I was talking to a friend cyclist uh, yesterday and uh, we were both saying, What a great idea, something we should definitely aspire to. Justin Lark is an avid cyclist, a colleague of mine in the emergency department here at Denver Health, and has traveled to Paris Roubaix uh, twice and uh, now to the Tour of Flanders this year. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And that is it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references, as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found on the show notes at www.trydocpodcast.podbean.com. There, you can also find an archive of previous shows. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri-doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services, as well as a means to communicate with me directly. The music heard at the beginning and end of the show is radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, another interview, and another episode of the Triathlete Talk with a guide to Ironman Lake Plaza. Until then, train hard, train healthy.